Amen. Thanks, Ron. Uh, <clears throat> my name's Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, if you're a guest with us, never been here before, uh, there's an insert in the worship folder. Uh, on one side of that are some scripture passages. On the other side is an outline. Uh, everything that I'm going to be reading from and then the outline that we're going to follow uh, is for you uh, to help you as we go through this. Uh, we're in a series on leadership, and we've come to deacons. This is the, uh, I guess, the fifth week of the series. We started at the beginning of August, five Sundays in August. We're on the fifth Sunday, and so we find ourselves in the fifth week. It'll continue for two more weeks, and then we'll be back in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. So again, if you've not been here uh, before, this, le- uh, this leadership series is, is only five weeks, and five weeks old, I should say, and it's not going to be going for much longer. But what we've seen in it is first the need for leaders, uh, how each of us, because of sin, are prone to self-rule. We desire to rule ourselves. Uh, We long for that. And God has actually made us uh, for rule. He's made us uh, to be looked after, uh, to follow His Word, to follow His authority, and not our own. And the consequences of what happens when we try to live uh, differently from that are uh, brokenness and destruction in our wake. And then as we've kind of continued on, we've seen how the the church is called to a ministry of word and deed, and how God in His mercy has given us two offices in the church, two office bearers, two leadership sets, if you will, of elder and deacon to kind of lead us out in that. And so the last couple of weeks we've been looking at elders, and this week we're going to look at deacons. Uh, I direct you to the front side, I guess it's the front side, of the uh, insert in your worship folder. It'll also be on the screen behind me, but I'm going to read through each of these passages in turn, beginning with Acts 6, and then going to 1 Timothy 3, and then to Matthew 20. Okay, So I invite you to follow along brought a Bible from home, that's great as well. They're also in the pews. So, we got all the bases covered. So from Acts chapter 6. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Secondly, from 1 Timothy 3, uh, verses 8 to 13. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. 
Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And then lastly from Matthew 20, uh, 25 to 28. Jesus called to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's Word. If you would flip the, the... Insert over and you'll see the outline there. Uh, it's a pretty simple outline. The, the introduction, I'm going to give you a brief history of deacons. So if you hated history in school, I'm sorry. This is, this is going to be a history lesson of sorts. But hopefully uh, you'll see we can learn a lot from how the work and the job description of deacons has morphed over time. Uh, but then we're going to take a look at the deacon's work, the deacon's character, and the deacon's model. Okay, So we're going to kind of start here on the surface of looking at the work of the deacon and move a little deeper to what's the character required to do that work. And underneath that, the fountainhead or the source or the model for the deacon's character required to do the deacon's work and how the gospel models that, how Jesus models that for us. So let's take a look or go over for a few minutes a brief history of the deacons. The word for deacon, uh, diakonos, for those of you that were looking for a Greek lesson today, there it is. If you weren't, there it is. Anyway, um, in English, what does the word deacon mean or what's it come to mean? Over time, servant, words like minister and even helper. And out of that comes a variety of understandings within the church You've got some traditions, if you've come from maybe a Roman Catholic or an Anglican or Episcopalian background, deacons are kind of like assistants to the priests or the bishops, right? Other traditions have deacons as administrators or financial property caretakers, uh, kind of like a trustee of the church. And still others have them serve as an executive board with a a broad decision-making power uh, of, of responsibility. So there's all kinds of... The gamut runs pretty wide with respect to deacons. But how has the church throughout history understood the function of deacon? Well, in the early church, we have records dating back to the 2nd century that indicate most churches elected bishops or elders and deacons. The main responsibility of the deacons was to look after the poor and widows within the church. They often visited in the community and among members to discover and meet the existing needs. But they also helped and assisted bishops in the Lord's Supper And they administered the fellowship meals the church often shared after their worship time. At his time past, the primary role of the deacon became one of assistant to a bishop or elder. And while the role of helper was always included, it was never meant to be exclusive of the others. But over time, uh, it kind of morphed into they were basically liturgical assistants by the mid-third century. And in traditions like the Roman Catholic Church and even in the Anglican churches today, you still see deacons operating in that function. By the Middle Ages, though, deacons weren't valued as officers in the church. They were a lower class of church official whose job it was to serve the priests and the bishops. 
Uh, but in the Reformation period, John Calvin in particular taught and believed that deacons were primarily in charge of caring for widows, the poor, the sick, the afflicted. He, he promoted them in a sense as having an integrity all their own. They don't exist merely to carry out the wishes of the elders, but they have a holiness to their office and they make decisions in their areas of responsibility. The Puritans, though, developed an even different understanding over time. They, they, they called the deacons the chief financial officers of the church. They were primarily administrators. And ministries of mercy were only a part of the greater whole of their duties. So come to America and you, you take the American church, specifically Presbyterianism, and how over the 17 and 1800s, America took its cues from really the Scottish and English understanding of deacons. Yes, they were supposed to look after the poor, but even the needs outside the church weren't given much attention. The deacons were mainly in charge of the temporalities of the church. In fact, that's kind of where this whole idea of the elders, the elders care for the spiritual things, those are most important, and the deacons kind of look after the physical, the temporal things. So that's why they're kind of subclass, a, 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 a lower class of church official. They... They look after the property. They lock the doors. They do things like that. Beyond that, there wasn't much to it. In general, the subject of deacons in their work wasn't discussed much at all by the church at large. In fact, those of you who've been Presbyterian for a long period of time might be interested to know, as recently as the late 1800s, a majority of churches in the U.S. didn't even have deacons. But... Contrast that, a completely different picture emerges when you look at churches that came out of Holland. In Europe, as well as in America, even to today, Dutch Christian churches believed and held deacons in very high esteem. Their prime purpose was mercy. In the 1600s, both in the Netherlands and other areas of Europe, many churches were seen as social service agencies of their city. They supported orphanages, had homes for the elderly, managed schools, clothing manufacturers, and bakeries that would distribute the necessities of life to those in need. And that was all overseen by deacons. In fact, they even sat on the so-called church council alongside elders. And all that is to say, that short history lesson, some of you are thinking, wow, that was not short. Uh, But no, it really is. I'm covering, let's see, 3rd century, 300, to about the year 2000, 1,700 years in six minutes. Uh, All that to say, we've all had a different experience or may have come from a church or uh, been exposed to a church tradition that referred to deacons or we saw deacons operate in a manner different than uh, somebody else, maybe the person sitting next to you even. So we've all got these various experiences that we're coming to this subject with and hopefully as we look at the work of the deacon the character of the deacon and the model of the deacon, some of this will become at least how we would like to see deacons uh, carry out their role in Redeemer. Hopefully that will become clearer. Uh, So first, the deacon's work. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 6. Again, you can, if you're using your insert, you can just flip back over and look at Acts 6. But the origin of the work of the deacon really does come from this passage. It teaches us from the early days of the church, the ministry of deacons was organized and recognized by the church as a whole. 
In Acts 6, it doesn't say that they were deacons, but the work that they were doing became deacon work. It teaches us that the work of deacons is given to officers who specialize in its coordination and its work. In fact, the words from which we get the word deacon, the New Testament words that are used to describe it, in both their noun and verb forms, have not only the sense of general service, but they have a narrower sense of attending to people's bodily sufferings and material needs. So it's not just service generically. It really is specific to tangible needs within the body and in the greater community. The service to which Paul and other writers often refer to is is in reference to the saints. Uh, Thus it's come to be understood as ministry to the saints. Deacons serve the church. They do not serve the elders or the pastors or you know, their bosses. They serve the church and the needs of the church. So, its origin really does come out of Acts chapter 6, but also, it's very distinctive. If you use Acts 6 as a guide, um, from this passage and others, the Scriptures seem to teach the primary or principal role of these deacons is one of ministering to needs. In other words, it's mercy. Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 10, Let us do good to everyone, especially to those of the household of faith. So first, their responsibility is to those in the household of faith, but also to those outside. These leaders in the church lead us in what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. In fact, the Good Samaritan, uh, in Jesus' parable about the man who was beat up and left for dead, and the Good Samaritan who comes alongside and binds up his wounds and puts him on his donkey and carries him to the inn, And looks after him. Jesus gets to the end of that. And he says to the lawyer who asked the question, who was the neighbor to this man? And the lawyer actually says, the one who did mercy to him. Some of your Bibles will say, the one who showed him mercy. But literally, he says, the one who did mercy. That is deaconing. They're not responsible for church discipline. You heard that in the the fifth question that was asked to the the Sizemores and the Wamplers earlier. Do you submit to the government discipline of the church? Deacons don't conduct church discipline. That really falls to the elders as shepherds. However, they don't differ from elders in degree of Christian maturity as in a difference of gifts and calling. I mentioned this earlier. Becoming a deacon isn't like a stepping stone or a proving ground for potential elders. It's not like you identify people who want to be elders and you say, well, we'll make you a deacon for a little while. Like, you know, you're going to try out for the major leagues, but we're going to stick you in the farm league for a couple of years. You can work your way up through the AA, AAA. And then maybe you'll get called up to the big leagues one day. That's, that, that's not a distinction that's made in the Scriptures. Look, look at the lists in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The major difference between overseers and deacons is that deacons aren't required to teach. And as I'll get to in a second, really the the list that Paul makes in 1 Timothy 3 is very similar in scope, almost like a continuation of what he's already said about elders. So, it's a distinctive office. It has distinctive uh, work and responsibilities. But deacons also have goals. As leaders in the church, the work of deacons edifies the church in respect to its worship, its nurture, and its witness. Um, Think about it this way. Giving to those in need is ultimately an act of worship. It's a sacrifice to God Himself. 
And on a monthly basis, after we take the Lord's Supper communion together, uh, there is a mercy ministry offering taken up after. Every month we do that. It is an act of worship. Because in the gospel, we believe we have freely received in or through Jesus Christ's work. And because we freely received, it now empowers us to freely give. The church calls its members to maturity in Christ also. The church nurtures its members. It instructs, it disciples its members. And part of that growth is a willingness to give to those in need. And so the deacons lead us out in carrying out that function. If we are mature, if we are growing in Christ to the extent we understand what He has done for us, we then open our hands with our our stuff, whether it be money, our material possessions, whatever it might be, to share, to give away. Lastly, though, the witness of the church to the world would be absolutely empty without deeds of mercy to prove the testimony of our words. Gospel words and gospel deeds go hand in hand. We talked about this a few weeks back. Works of mercy and words of grace work together to witness to the reality of God's kingdom in our community and our world. And this is one of the key goals of the deacon's work. We don't just say we believe something. We do it. We act it out. Deeds of mercy, words of grace, they go together. So that's kind of his work. Uh, What's the character required to do that work? Well, Paul lists that in 1 Timothy 3. Again, it's uh, listed in the middle there on the uh, uh, one side of your insert. But what's what's the character required if that's the work? Uh, Well, again, the characteristics that the apostles set out in Acts 6 are very helpful. If you look at them alongside Paul's qualities in 1 Timothy chapter 3, choose men full of good repute, full of a good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. Those three things, alongside of what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. One thing to note, though, you'll notice in verse 8, he says, likewise. And really, it indicates this is a list that just continues or it's another way of looking at many of the same qualities that he just talked about with respect to elders and overseers. Uh, and so I'm, I'm just going to look at a couple. I'm not going to go through all of them, because Drew hit many of them last week in talking about elders. Some of the same things Paul mentions in this list to describe deacons, he's just talked about in elders. Paul says first, they must be dignified. It means worthy of respect. Again, Acts chapter 6. Choose men of a good reputation. Choose men who are honored and respected by the people around them. Their their moral character leads those in the church to esteem them, to give them respect. But Paul then goes on and he gives three qualities that would not deem someone worthy of respect. The apostles in Acts tell the people that these men should be full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. Well, obviously the two are tied together because someone can only be full of wisdom if they are controlled or full of the Holy Spirit. Paul says deacons should be full of the Spirit, not full of words. He calls it being double-tongued. We call it having no integrity. Right? Says one, someone who says one thing does another. Or maybe they say one thing when they're in one audience, they say another thing completely different in another audience. Deceitful in their 
speech. What you say and how you say it depends on who you're with because your words are empty. And so your words can't be trusted. Your agenda and your sense of self-importance control you, not the Spirit. And according to the Scriptures, this is foolishness. And so we, 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 don't, we don't have deacons who are double-tongued. But Paul says, deacons should not be full of wine. This is gluttony. It's excessiveness. You don't control your drinking habits. In Ephesians 5, verse 18, Paul says, don't be drunk with wine. In other words, don't be filled up with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be drunk with the Holy Spirit, so to speak. Again, it's, it's foolishness. It's not wisdom. Because you are being controlled by your craving for alcohol, your craving for excess, your, your craving to satisfy your, your desire for something, not by a craving to please the Spirit. So rather than being controlled by the Spirit, he says we should, uh, deacons shouldn't be controlled by their words, controlled by wine or gluttony. But he also says deacons shouldn't be greedy, controlled by money, full of covetousness, not the Spirit. And this is a very sober warning against those who would use their position to advance themselves financially. Because, as you know, if the deacons are responsible for mercy, distributing mercy, distributing funds, then you've got to be careful. So he says they shouldn't be greedy for dishonest gain. Again, controlled by the Spirit, not by money. Now, I do want to say, I want to emphasize, we need wisdom so desperately in the work of the diaconate. As many of you know, the discernment required in handling money and the responsibility of distributing it is immense. I mean, who are the people in our society who handle great amounts of money? Do you want them to be untrustworthy? When they are... Do we like that? No. It bothers us. It angers us. I mean, if if you have somebody who's managing uh, finances for people, like a financial advisor or a a stockbroker or somebody like that, in a sense, they're kind of a deacon for their clients, right? They're serving the needs of their clients. If they're serving their needs and they're losing all their clients' money, first of all, over time... They ain't going to have many more clients. But secondly, the the trustworthiness that you take your money to them and expect gets lost when they begin to use those funds for their own purposes. The same issue is faced in mercy ministry. The issues and the people and the problems oftentimes are so complex, there's a tightrope between generosity and responsibility, right? Right? Oftentimes it depends on what end of the spectrum you're on as to whether you think the deacons or the church is being generous versus being stingy. Right. Wisdom is so, so important. Uh, The so-called tyranny of the urgent is a constant challenge in mercy ministry. We have people who stop by. My electricity is going to be cut off today. I need $175. Can you please help? I mean, what would you do? These are the kinds of issues that we face. 
Pray for Connie, because oftentimes she's the one that has to answer the question. (laughs) So can you help me? Well, and then usually she knocks on my door. (laughs) But without wisdom, you fall prey to being used and abused on the one hand, or rarely helping anyone else out of fear of getting abused on the other hand. Um, I mentioned John Calvin earlier. I want to quote from something that, that he said about deacons with respect to wisdom that I felt like was just powerful and we needed to hear it. He says, It is necessary for them to be provided not only with the other graces of the Spirit, but also certainly with wisdom. For without it, that task cannot properly be carried out. They must be on their guard, not only against the impostors and frauds of those who are far too inclined to begging and suck up what was needed for the brethren who are in extreme poverty, but also against the slanders of those who are constantly making disparaging remarks, even if there is no occasion for doing so. For as well as being full of difficulties, that office is also exposed to unjustified complaints. I mean, it just takes gobs and gobs of wisdom. So please pray as we begin to think, as we begin to get nominations and so forth and move through this process, please pray uh, for wisdom to know how it is that we can have people responsible uh, for distributing funds in the church and, and other responsibilities who are full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit, full of good reputation. Uh, lastly, though, we, we, we can't just stop there. We've seen the scope of the work, how important it is and how necessary it is in the life of the church, but also the character required of those who would lead the church. Where, where does the character and the ability to do it come from? Well, look at Matthew 20. It's the last passage there on, on the Scripture side of your insert. And there's just three verses that I read there. Uh, and the context of this story, along with... A similar story in, well, the same story told from Luke's perspective in Luke chapter 22 is that there's an argument among the disciples and they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Jesus is talking about dying, being uh, flogged and mocked and crucified and, and, and given up to the authorities and they're all worried about who's going to be the greatest. And he says to them that the greatest among you is your servant. He literally says in verse 26 there, you'll see it, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your deacon. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And not just a slave, but the word he uses is bottom of the scale slave. Slave that was someone else's property. Slave who didn't really even have a name. Who were you called? You were called like... Julius' slave. You didn't even have a name. Your identity was so tied up in your master and what he was calling you to do. And Jesus says, whoever wants to be great, whoever wants to be first, must be like a deacon, must be like a slave. Because this is how I have come. Only someone who's experienced the mercy of the greatest deacon to ever live, Jesus Christ, will be enabled to reach out in deeds of mercy to those in need, especially those who don't thank you when you give to them or aren't deserving, at least from your perspective. 
Not just those who bear the title of deacon, but this is a call of every Christian. Until you've known the humble service of Jesus, living the life you should have lived and dying the death that you should have died, he did that for you, his enemy. Until you've known that, you'll not know what service is. You'll not know how to live as a slave to others. You'll feel like it's beneath you. I'm not doing that. That's beneath me. I'm not doing that. Let somebody else do that. What better way to be humbled than to be asked to wash feet? Have you ever washed anyone's feet? Anybody in here? Okay. Yeah, the the question is, when did you wash them? Was it at the end of the day? Was it on a mission trip where their feet had been in socks and boots, working outside in 95 degree heat? You know, was it in the Antarctic? Was it right after they got out of the shower? Okay, when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, it's after a full day of work. At the end of the day, they had sandals on, all of them. Their feet were dirty. Their feet probably had diseases rolling all over them. He doesn't care. He's not even asked to do it. He willingly does it. In John chapter 13, Jesus says, I leave you an example that you should do for one another as I have done for you. He says, love one another as I have loved you. If the Son of God himself would stoop so low for you and I, you realize he's been humiliated beyond anything that you and I could ever imagine. It is, it, it, it's, it's almost like, I mean, the, this doesn't even get at it, but it's like Queen Elizabeth II, the Queen of England, going and serving in a leper colony or going to Nairobi, Kenya and serving in one of the largest slums in the world and picking up the human waste on the sides of the road. In, in cleaning up the throw-up of people who are sick with malaria and dying of AIDS. That's, that's kind of like this. But this is the Lord of glory, the one who... Who spoke and the universe came into existence. And He comes low. He comes and walks among us. And if He would do that, if He would come to us as one who serves, in Luke chapter 22, He says, Who's greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? And for the disciples and for us, that's a no-brain question. Of course it's the person reclining at the table, not the person who serves. And then Jesus says a a startling statement. He says, I'm among you as one who serves. And if he would do that, then what task is beneath you and I? It's only a heart that's been captured and won by the service of Jesus that can freely serve others sacrificially. When Jesus became a deacon, he did so to his own hurt. He was utterly concerned with one thing and one thing only, his Father's will. He was controlled by love. And therefore, he wasn't gluttonous, he wasn't deceitful, he wasn't greedy. I repeat what he said in Matthew 20. The greatest among you is your deacon. Uh, Husbands, got a great opportunity to be a deacon to your wife every day. Wives, you've got a great opportunity to be a deacon to your husband every day. Parents, you've got a great opportunity to deacon your children every day. 
children, teenagers who are in here, likewise. We all have so many opportunities. Jesus says, the greatest among you is your deacon. And it's only as our heart is captured more and more by the love of God for us in Christ that you and I can be freed, freed, to freely give and freely serve as we've so freely received. Let's pray. Let's ask God to give us hearts that are in love with serving and give us wisdom as we think about who would lead us as deacons in this area in our church. Lord Jesus, we stand in awe of you that you who would come from the glories of heaven, the worship and the praise of angels, from from time eternal, and come so low to walk among us, to to be uh, loved by some, hated by some, and ultimately, as you would experience, to be mocked, to be spit on, to be jeered, to be flogged, to be nailed to a cross of wood, all because you came to give your life as a ransom in exchange for the life of those who had done nothing to deserve it, nothing but rebel against you and shake their fist in your face. Lord Jesus, make us more and more attuned to what you have done that we might in turn be able to not only live that way ourselves, but to call leaders out from among us who can lead us in deeds of mercy, both within our body and to our community and world. And may that witness be to your glory, according to your grace and mercy. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Um, the most distinctive thing about Christianity, you, you can look in all the other holy books of all the other religions of the world, none of them will have John 3.16, which is God so loved the world that he sent, uh, that he came down to find us. Uh, and the great news of the gospel is Jesus actually became a deacon. Uh, he wasn't a God who s- stayed way up here, uh, stood afar off, uh, just got mad and, and, and threatened to blow us all up in some sort of nuclear holocaust. He, he came down to find us. He took up the, the wash basin and the towel and he washed our feet. What God? You, you'll never meet a God like that. There's not a God that exists like that but ours. Uh, So as you go, the great promise of the gospel and the blessing of this benediction is he goes to equip you to do that. Your faith and your hope and your trust are in him. Uh, And our prayer is he'd make us a church that does this very thing. So receive this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.